welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. I believe that there are times when we all come to a place in our individual lives where we simply need some kind of encouragement, where we need a glimmer of hope. And it's not that we that the hope that we have has been extinguished, right? But rather, the, the circumstances of our lives begin to weigh heavy on us and distract us, and we begin to wonder about the things that we even were so sure of before, things that we were holding on to as, as fact, we begin to wonder, am I going the right direction? Am I really following where God is leading me? Am I even really saved? Did I really believe the gospel? Am I going where God is calling me to go? Is is what I believe the truth, or am I just am I just fooling myself? Sometimes the circumstances in our lives and the way things seem to work out seem to be in complete opposition to what we think we know and believe and understand. Right? Causing us to doubt and even to wonder and even despair at times. Sometimes we, we just need some kind of encouragement. Sometimes we just need confirmation that the direction we're going is actually the right direction. That the hope that we're holding on to is actually real. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that the promises of God are actually true in spite of the way things may seem. 2008 was a big transformational year for my family and I. You see, I'd spent the, the previous four years working for a kitchen and bathroom company as a newer Christian, and I was successful in my job, and I was very happy, and I, and I thought that I had a clear picture of where my life was headed. I really believed that I knew what my life was supposed to look like. The future seemed so very certain to me, but then I began to sense a call from God on my life towards a ministry, and, and this call began to grow in my heart. And it was something that, that was confirmed by many different people around me in my life. And it seemed like everyone around me knew where I was supposed to be going and what I was supposed to be doing except for me. And so I resisted. But then my mom had passed away in late 2008 and that took an emotional toll on me and it caused me to rethink a lot of things and – right. And, and things at work had been, had been changing as well. The passion I felt for my job and my career faded into the background. I used to love my job. I used to go to work early and stay late. I was excited about what I was doing, and I was losing that passion. And the things that I once valued, like money and attention and accolades I received from my, my coworkers and from, from other industry partners, I no longer you know, sought those things or those, those things weren't attractive to me anymore. I didn't care about that stuff. And the calling that I'd felt in my heart, in my life, began to grow even stronger. And so after lots of conversations with my supportive wife and after more and more confirmation through the word of God and through people, I decided to finally commit to follow where God was calling me and go where he was leading. And so we decided the best course of action was to move here to Boron in order to simplify our lives so that I could get into a position to seek where God was leading me. Now, please understand, I, I had no idea how God was going to lead me into ministry, right? And I had no idea of how everything else was going to work out. I, I, I had no idea, you know, of, of, 
of the timing of everything either. Like I would have thought I would have been in ministry much sooner, but it, it took much longer than I expected. All I knew, though, was the fact that I was convinced beyond all doubt that God was calling me to this. And I believe with all my heart that Borum was a place that he wanted me and my family to be. And I was completely convinced of those things. And so we moved here. And in my mind, I had it all planned out. How things were to go. I was going to move here. Right. And then I was going to go to work for a big company, maybe like the plant or maybe, you know, uh, somewhere out in Mojave or even Edwards Air Force Base. And then I would make plenty of money to pay all of our bills and and we would just kind of move on like we were going. And then I would begin to like start to look for how God would work in my life towards a ministry. But as we as things begin to happen, as we moved here. The things that had my mind were planned out didn't go the way I was expecting. Because we began to face all kinds of challenges. In fact, it was late 2008 and the economy was tanking. And I was I was struggling to find enough work to take care of my family. Which was a strange new thing for me because I'd always been able to work and, and pay the bills. And to make things worse, we didn't even know what church to join. I mean, we moved here, but like there was a few churches to choose from but we had no idea which one to join what their what what was what their teachings were you know in fact i was still very young in my theology then and i didn't even know where to begin the process of getting plugged in like i didn't know how to find a mentor to teach me about church ministry i mean i mean like i I couldn't imagine myself just showing up at a church somewhere saying hey by the way god's called me to ministry so will you teach me that just didn't you know what i mean i didn't know how that conversation would take place and so i had no idea even where to begin my education for this calling it was like i stepped off into the great unknown and nothing I mean, nothing was working out the way that we'd expected. And after several months, I began to find that I was doubting, that I even, that, that I even like knew what I knew. The things that I thought I was so sure of were certainly were suddenly in doubt, and I began to despair. And my heart began to grow heavy, and I began to question: right, Did I make a mistake? Was I wrong to move my family to this little bitty town with such few job prospects? Was I fooling myself that God? can use a knucklehead like me in the ministry. I was so sure about where I was going at one point, but then the circumstances around me seemed to be casting a huge shadow of doubt on what I've been holding on to. And my certainty, my certainty began to weaken, but then God began to work in our lives in a way that strengthened our hope. You see, our hope began to grow dim, but God, through his word and through his people, And through his providence and sovereignty in our lives gave us the encouragement and confirmation we needed to carry on and follow where he was leading. Sometimes what we need is just some encouragement. Sometimes God's people need a little reminder of their hope. Sometimes God's people need to be reminded that God's plan is the one that counts. And we're called to follow him even when it seems like it doesn't make any sense. And that's what we see in the text today, by the way. You see, the transfiguration is one of the most incredible, supernatural, but most underappreciated events in all of the entire Bible. In fact, if you were to write down what you think the top ten supernatural events in the Bible were, the transfiguration probably wouldn't make the list, even the top 20. And the reason I think that that is, the reason why it's underappreciated is because so many people, right, just don't understand what's happening here. There's so much misunderstanding of this event. Sometimes people just over-spiritualize it. But more importantly, people take things out of context, like verse 1 of chapter 9. Mark records, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will taste, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You see, one of the big problems that many have with interpreting this text as we're, that we're looking at today, it stems from the confusion over this particularly one verse. Because this verse itself is sandwiched between what just happened when Jesus talks about what it means to follow him and picking up their cross and the transfiguration that happened six days later. The problem with this whole section and how we understand it stems generally from a misunderstanding of the meaning of this verse 1. 
because people, many people will take verse 1 and pull it out of its context as if it's a standalone proclamation of the Bible. They will separate it from the end of what Jesus said. Right? They will they will wrap up chapter 8, and because this begins verse 9, they think it's different. These chapter uh, insertions, by the way, are relatively new, only been around for a few hundred years. Right, And so that sometimes it makes things seem to be more broke up than they really are. But they will separate it from what just happened, and then they will separate it from what Jesus is about to do. Right, And, and doing that... Right? By believing that, 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 you know, that, that these are separate things, it really just breaks the context up. And many people do this because they say that what Jesus is talking about here in verse 1 is the end times. They will say what Jesus is talking about, about the kingdom coming with power, right, refers to Christ's return and the beginning of his future kingdom when God finally sets all things right. That's what many people believe. And believing that, they just ineffectively disconnect what Jesus has just said about following him from what's going to happen next on the mountain during the transfiguration, creating this weird division between these events. This is a problem, by the way, with the unhealthy obsession that many people have with the end times. Because many people have an unhealthy obsession with the end times. In fact, people, some, a lot of people who have this unhealthy obsession with the end times know their end times theology very well, but have a, but don't have a very good grip on the other, really foundational things of their theology. Like for instance, I just had a conversation with a man who didn't know the difference between a deacon and an elder, didn't even understand those roles inside of the church. I personally believe that you should have a better understanding of, of of ecclesiology and and how the church is ran better than the your end times perspective. I think that you should have a better handle on the gospel. I think there's a lot of things we should have a better handle on, like our view of God and the view of scriptures, rather than you know whether we know when Jesus is coming back or not, and whether it's going to fit this particular pattern that we've been taught. There is an unhealthy obsession with the end times. Because, and because of that, people are so focused on their particular view of the end times that it colors how they see every single text in the Bible. And in the process, verses like this one become something that the authors never, ever, ever intended. So hear me on this. Verse 1 of chapter 9 is not about the end times. Okay, Write that down if you need to underline it, highlight it, whatever you got to do. If somebody says that it's about end times, you need to tell them it is not. Right? Verse 1 is not about the end times at all. In fact, I would argue that verse 1 actually is a bridge between the end of chapter 8 and what Jesus says about following him and the beginning of the transfiguration in chapter 9. And the reason why I believe that is two reasons. Number one, that's where the text actually ends up. It's, it's there between these two events. There's nothing else to, to suggest any other context. And number two, the context itself. Because remember, sometimes God's people need, a con- need some confirmation and encouragement and hope. right? And that's, and that's what this event is about. Because think about this. The apostles have just now been on the most incredible roller coaster ride of emotions in their entire lives. They discovered the answers to the three questions we've been talking about the last few weeks. Who is Christ? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? And it begins with Peter's supernatural insight and who Christ is. Jesus, if you remember, asked the question, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you're John the Baptist or you're, you're Elijah or you're one of the prophets. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with supernatural insight, says, you're the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus, how does he react? He says, blessed are you, Peter, for God has revealed the truth to you. Blessed are you, Peter. The word blessed means happy or, or in an enviable position or favorable. Right? Blessed are you, Peter. What, what, what a beautiful you know, confirmation. In that moment, Peter must have felt really, really good about himself. I mean, just imagine, you know, when you get a compliment, right? from somebody you respect highly, like your parents or, or just, you know, a, a coworker or somebody at work or somebody that you just you just really have this 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 tendency to look up to. Right? How does that make you feel when 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 they would say something like you did a great job today? Right? He must have felt like he was finally getting it. He must have felt like he was getting clear about many things. He must have felt like he was really growing. 
But then Jesus answers the question of why he came. And he said that he must suffer many things and be killed by the hand of his enemies and be raised three days later. And Peter now puffed up with his like newfound encouragement was like, I just need to set Jesus straight because I know more than he does. Right? And say, you can't die, Jesus. That's not going to ever happen to you. We won't let that happen. And so he rebukes Jesus. Think about this. Now he, you know, <laughs> he's going to turn around and he's going to like, he's going to scold the Messiah. He rebukes Jesus. But then Jesus, right after praising him for his insight, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In one hand, he goes, blessed are you, Peter. And then the next moment, he's, he's calling him Satan. Like the contrast between those two statements are worlds apart, right? He scolds him and says, you're sending your mind on the wrong things. You're thinking about things of man and not things of God. You're thinking about your own plans and not God's plans. And, and as the disciples who are now thinking the same thing Peter did, reel from this tongue lashing, right? Jesus drops another truth bomb on them and he says to them what it means to follow him. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to put away your selfish motives and your self-centered perspective and your own ideas of the future, what that might hold. And you need to make me the center of your life. And then you need to willingly pick up that cross and endure whatever shame and whatever pain and whatever trouble that that encompasses and you need to follow me. You need to be willingly you need to willingly surrender your life for my sake. You need to make me and my ministry the center of your life and your heart and your mind. And you need to pick that cross up and embrace it and follow me as I bear my own cross all the way to my own death. That's what he's saying to them. Now just imagine were there emotionally in this moment? They've been following Jesus for over a year. They left everything behind to follow him because they knew there's something special about him. They left behind businesses and equipment. I mean, Matthew left behind a lucrative, you know, um, tax collecting business. And they've seen him do incredible things, incredible miracles. And they've heard him speak with such compelling authority as, as which everybody else marvels at his authority. And their understanding of Christ is continually growing from one event to the next, culminating in Peter's confession where, where Christ himself gives Peter praise for his insight. And just when it seems like all the pieces fall into place, when all the pieces come together, right, and they finally get it, Jesus then upends what their understanding of his mission and what their own role in that is. They finally understand who Christ is but they find that their picture and their vision of the future is at odds with Jesus and what he's telling them. I think it would be safe to assume that they were probably overwhelmed. Maybe even a bit discouraged. Maybe hurt. Right? Maybe just wondering, like, are we, are we even in the right place? <laughs> I, I don't know if I signed up for this. Uh, am I doing the right thing? Am I even supposed to to even be here? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you've asked yourself those questions and wonder that? Where you're at one point so sure, you know for a fact where you're going, what you're doing, what, what, what you're doing is right, right? The, the plans that you have are correct. You know, you're confident, you believe, but then things get hard and circumstances change and your life, you know, and, and you just think to yourself, Am I even in the right place? I don't even know if I signed up for this. Am I even supposed to be here? I know there have been times in the past seven years when I've asked that question. I'll be honest. There have been times where I've prayed, you know, God, are you sure you picked the right guy? Like, this is harder than I thought. This is more than I thought. This is more trying than I thought. Am I really in the right place? Right? Am I really equipped for this job? Am I supposed to be here? I expected things to go one way and now they're completely different. I'm sure in that moment after being so confident that they that that you know that they know that they were they were where they were supposed to be and and their vision of the future was so certain. Right? And that all that was right in the world with the world, and then suddenly Jesus says, "You got it all wrong, guys. 
You're not thinking with the right perspective. You're thinking with the wrong perspective. I'm not here to lead a military victory. I'm not here to set Israel free. I'm here to suffer and die, and I'm calling you to follow me, maybe even to your own death. I'm sure after that there was more than likely some some serious soul-searching. Now it's that context right there, after this emotional roller coaster ride, in the same conversation, Jesus follows up by making a promise to them. And he says, there are some standing here in this moment who will not taste death until they have, till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So you understand what Jesus is saying here. This is really, really important. People overcomplicate this, but this is very simple. He said, some of you, not all of you, but some of you will see the kingdom of God come in power. Some of you are going to see it, and some of you are not going to see it. Which means this isn't the day of Pentecost. He's not talking about the day of Pentecost. Because, because all of them would see it, except Judas, but he doesn't count. He wasn't even really a, a believer. And he's not talking about the end times because none of them would ever see that. Because remember, the end times are not, hasn't happened yet, and they're all dead, so they wouldn't see it. They've already tasted death. So he must be talking about something else. And he is. Notice in verse 2, this is the key. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. The first thing that I want you to notice is Mark gets unusually specific about the amount of time that goes by here. Because this is really unusual. Throughout his gospel, he doesn't do this very often. All right? In fact, the first chapter, first eight chapters, we don't see Mark recording this kind of date-specific detail, which means him saying six days is an important clue. You see, Mark, what he's doing, he's giving us a clear indication of timing because he's connecting what Jesus just said to what's about to happen. They're related incidents. That's why he's specific about the date. And what happens, right? What happens is a monumental, supernatural, life-changing encounter Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, some of his disciples, not all of his disciples, you see this, right? Not all of his disciples, some of his disciples up on this high mountain, right? Remember, Jesus said, some of you will see something really big. And six days later, he takes some of them up on this, this high mountain, which is most likely Mount Hermon, which is like 9,000 feet above sea level, just north of Galilee. And on a clear day, you can see forever. In fact, it's been said that you can see the entire Jordan River Valley and that when the sun goes down, you can see the shadow of the mountain creep across the land until everything is consumed in darkness. It's, it, it's something stunning to behold. And so Jesus takes these three on up on this mountain and Luke tells, tells us that they went up there to pray. Jesus takes these three men, right? He singles them out of the group. You, you, and you. Right? And then he leads him like up a 9,000 foot high mountain. This is a hike, right? To pray. Which, by the way, I think this must have been a solemn privilege by itself. To get some exclusive time away from the crowds and away from the noise with Christ himself. Right? In a quiet place like this high mountain. And to get up there and pray with him as he prays the Father, that by itself must have been special and encouraging on its own. And in fact, the context suggests that they prayed for a long time, that they prayed way into the night, even fell asleep. And while they were there, like, while they were up on this mountain, something incredible happened they never expected. Mark says that he was transfigured before them. Now, the word transfigured in English is it's kind of a strange word because we don't hear it very often, and, and, and really the meaning or the impact of this word kind of escapes us. This word transfigured is from the Greek word metamorphothi, and I think you kind of, kind of guess what that means, but it's the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis or metamorphosize. And what Mark is literally saying is that Jesus metamorphosized. He changed, right? He radically changed. He transformed from one form to another right there in front of them. I mean, something like, something completely different, like, like the striking difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. 
Jesus is visibly and supernaturally changed in form and appearance. And Mark says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Matthew says, his face shone itself like the sun. Now think about this. (laughs) Okay? Because this is something that can really escape us. One minute you have Jesus standing there. And by all accounts, Jesus was a typical-looking Jewish man. I mean, we, you know, we always see these pictures of this purdy Jesus in all the pictures. But by all accounts, he wasn't even a, a, like a, a good-looking man, right? He wasn't pretty, like when you see the fair-haired and blue-eyed and fair-skinned and perfect hair and unspotted clothing, right? Very kind of like, you know, Greco-Roman in his appearance. It's probably not what he looked like. Right? He, was, he was a Jewish man, a typical-looking Jewish man, probably had dark skin, dark eyes, wearing clothes that were soiled from daily use, right? if not to climb up the mountain. And he's standing there in the dark with his disciples. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus in the middle of the night, under the stars, was on this mountain, begins to glow so bright that Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes were so dazzling white that words and analogies escape Mark. All he can say is like, man, you know what? No one can even like bleach a shirt so white as dazzling as he was. And that's what the word means. It means it was dazzling. He was dazzling white. Now what is, what's, what's, what's happening here in this moment? What's happening is Jesus takes his closest three apostles who were probably struggling very emotionally with all that had transpired. He leads them up on this mountain. He prays with them and then graciously shows them something that no one has ever seen before. He shows them who he really is. He peels back momentarily his human veil and allows his divine glory to show through. He reveals to these men what has been what he has been alluding to all along. He is not just some rabbi. He is not just some prophet. He is not just some miracle worker from Galilee. He is God in the flesh. Jesus' transfiguration, this supernatural metamorphosis, reveals that Jesus is God incarnate. He is letting them see the nature of who he really is. Jesus is is God in the flesh. God himself has come to the earth. God himself walks among them. What an earth-shattering and astounding revelation. Remember Jesus said that he could he forgives sins. And people rightly said, "Who but God can forgive sins. And Jesus demonstrated dominion over the natural world by healing people and by calming storms and changing the weather and multiplying food. He also demonstrated he had dominion over the supernatural world by casting out demons. And he said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath belonged to him, claiming historical creation authority itself. But in this moment, right, in this moment, there's no more talk. He removes all doubt about his identity and he shows them and peels back his humanity and he shows them who he really is. He is God incarnate. What a, what a glorious revelation at that time. The transfiguration of Christ reveals Jesus' divine nature. And that by itself would have been amazing, but there's more to this event. Because not only does it reveal his divine nature, it confirms Peter's confession. Remember Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the thing that you need to understand is before Christ came, there were lots of people who rose up that were thought to be the Messiah. There were lots of Messiah figures in history throughout the intertestamental period. People people were raised up as the one that came from God, the one that was to come in the world, and people followed them zealously, even to their deaths, believing just like Peter believed, that that, that he had found the Messiah, that they were following the one. But all these other Messiahs came to nothing. And so Peter could have been wrong, but on this mountain, Jesus reveals who he really is, and it removes all doubts. 
And so what Peter said is absolutely true. Jesus, without question and without any shadow of a doubt, is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. What an incredible revelation. Now, if that had all been all that, that had happened that day by itself, that would have been quite enough to say that the kingdom of God has come in power and some of his disciples actually got to experience it, that Jesus fulfilled the promise that he'd made. But there's so much more. In Mark chapter 9, verse 4, he says, And there appeared to them Elijah and with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, please understand, I could do a whole sermon series on just one verse right here because there's a lot of layers of meaning and there's there's all the Old Testament connections and allusions here. In fact, some of you today will probably go, why didn't you talk about this or make that point? Just understand, right? There's so much to talk about in this one text that I can't do. I couldn't do four sermons on it, much less one. But with that, for the purposes that we have today, there's a few things I need to point out from this text. And, and the first thing I want you to notice is not only is Elijah and Moses with Jesus on the mountain, they're talking with Jesus. And the witnesses of the Gospels give us a sense that, that this is an extended conversation. This is not short, small talk. This isn't, hey guys, how's it going? This is a conversation. In fact, Luke says that they that they spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which is about to accomplish, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus was talking with Elijah and, Elijah and Moses about his death and resurrection, <laughs> which tells us something really important. First of all, it tells us that Jesus talking about his death and resurrection with his disciples before means that it was just not a statement he was making or just idle words to just rile them up. This was the plan. This is God's divine plan. This is the eternal plan. And he is talking about this plan with Moses and Elijah. Elijah just imagine that. Right? But more than that, this exchange also tells us that those who die don't simply fall asleep and are no longer conscious until the end times come, as some people suppose. There are people that believe that when you die, the lights go out and they don't come back on until the end times. That's not true. Those who die in Christ are very much alive and conscious which gives me great hope because Paul says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better for to me to, is for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians one twenty one. You see, this gives me great hope for two reasons. It reminds me that those I love, like my mom, who have died in Christ, are not just simply in a box under the earth out of existence. They are alive and well in the presence of our risen Lord. And that she now stands right now in the presence of Jesus and she sees things that I can't see and she knows things that I don't know. And I praise the Lord for that and it gives me great hope. And number two, it also encourages me because if, if I then in my life deny myself and pick up my cross and follow where Christ leads, if that means all the way to my death, then my hope in Christ is assured. I know what my destiny is. I know where I'm going. I know that I'm where I'm going that no one can ever hurt me ever again and take anything ever away from me again. I know that this future is sure and certain because I will one day be present with my Lord. Right. And this event right here must have been hope-inspiring for the disciples. Now, maybe not in that moment because they probably were in shock, you know, trying to just comprehend everything that's happening. But after Jesus died and after he was resurrected and ascended into heaven, I can imagine these guys looking back on this event, thinking about it, right, where, where they encountered Moses, who had been dead for nearly 1,500 years, and Elijah, who was gone from the earth like 900 years. And they encountered these, these men who long since be gone and now appeared alive and well with Christ. This must have inspired great hope in them to carry on. You see the sovereignty of God at work here. In fact, 
It probably fortifies the disciples' obedience to the call to radical discipleship. Jesus said to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. It probably was this moment right here that helped him to do that, to carry to carry these men through the humiliation that they were going to face, the danger that they would face, the persecution, and even the doubt that they would face. The thing to keep in mind is both Peter and James were martyred for their faith. They died brutal deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. And John, though not martyred, was boiled in oil and exiled to the island of Patmos. And the thing that we need to understand is these three never denied Christ after the resurrection. All three of them were faithful to the very end. And I believe that this event right here, seeing Christ in his glory, strengthened that resolve. And I can go on and on about this point. But there's another thing, I, I, another point I have to make before we move on, and that is Jesus' transfiguration, right? It demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets as, as God's final and complete and climactic revelation. You see, it's not just some strange coincidence that Moses and Elijah met with Christ, but God chose these two for a reason. In fact, notice the similarities. Moses and Elijah, like Jesus, went up on a mountain to meet with God. And God spoke with both of them like he spoke about to speak with his son. And God reveals his glory to both of them the way that Christ revealed his glory to these men. And they both departed the earth under unusual circumstances. I mean, Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire and Moses died in the presence of God and God himself buried Moses in a place unknown to anyone else. And we know how Jesus leaves the world, that he ascends into heaven right in front of everybody's eyes. You see, these men both prefigure Christ. They point toward him. They point toward his finished work. And, and, and I want you to think about this. What, is, what does Moses actually represent? He represents the law because he's the one that wrote the law, right? It's called the law of what? Right? The law of what? The law of Moses. What about Elijah? The prophets. Because he was a prophet of God who spoke for God. And what do they call What did they call the Old Testament scriptures at that time? What did they call the Old Testament? They called it the Law and the Prophets. Jesus is the incarnate Word. Remember John said in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was with was God, and the, and the Word and the Word was flesh. The Word became flesh. Jesus, the incarnate Word, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And this encounter points to that. And more than that, Jesus is the new Moses, right? That's talked about in Deuteronomy. He's the one that was to come, the second Moses that that Moses pointed to and said, you need to listen to him. He was the one that set this people free. And we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on that subject alone. But suffice it to say, Jesus clearly here demonstrates the law. And the prophets are fulfilled in him. And Jesus is God's final and complete revelation. That's why Paul says, opening up his letter to the Hebrews, Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scriptures, and he is God's final and complete and climactic revelation. Now, notice how Peter reacts here, because it's really telling. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here, which is probably the greatest understatement in this entire text, right? It's good that we're here. Of course, it's good that you're here. And he says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, a lot of people are going to overthink this and his intentions and what Peter said, and they're going to try to apply theology to what Peter said, but we need to understand Mark makes it really, really clear that Peter did not know what to say. Peter didn't know what the heck he was talking about, right? Peter is so uncomfortable with silence, he just felt like he had to say something, even if it makes things worse. And I think most of us know kind of what that's like. What that's like. There's those times where we're in a situation we don't know what to say. Our mind's saying, don't speak, but sudden, suddenly we find ourselves speaking, Right? 
and, and your mind's saying, shut your mouth, and you just keep talking, and it just makes things worse or I'm more uncomfortable. And you're just like, after it's over, you're like, I should have never said a word. That's just stupid that I even talked. That's Peter. Right? In fact, Matt um, on the worship team was saying that uh, during worship practice, he said, he goes, yeah, Peter was known for ready, fire, aim. <laughs> Peter is very impatient and, dis- and uncomfortable with silence, and he demonstrates a, a complete lack of wisdom here. And so for us, the issue is not what he said, right? But why he said what he said is the issue. Because notice Mark tells us, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And this right here is something we must absolutely get our heads wrapped around. Every time Jesus revealed a little bit more about his nature and who he was, what was his disciples' reaction? It was fear and terror. Think about when Christ calmed the storm. How did they react to that? Mark chapter 4, 41 says, For they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Or how about when he walked on the water? It says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke and said to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded and again here they are in this moment terrified as Christ shows them who he is and the reason why they're terrified is because the awesome power of God is really terrifying to behold and this is important because I just believe that so many of us Christians don't have a sufficient reverence or fear of who Christ is there are people who look at God as as the friendly man upstairs, and they they look at God as this pleasant, non-threatening old man with a beard who is is just simply there to encourage you and be a grandpa and give you encouragement and advice and and never to gets mad and just is always kind of like helping you out. Right? They don't think of him as the awesome, all-powerful, mighty God of the universe. Which Christ clearly reveals that's who he is. Jesus is almighty God. But today people don't get that. In fact, I've seen people refer to Jesus as their as their, their homeboy. <laughs> Talking about the epitome of no reverence at all for God. And please understand, culture is certainly to blame, but so is the church. Because the God that's been preached in so many pulpits is a God that's non-threatening, a God that, that doesn't get angry, a God that never gets mad, a God that's your buddy and he's your friend and he's your pal and you can take him fishing. Right? And all he wants is what's good for you and he never wants you to ever feel sad. And God is your safe space. And please don't get me wrong, okay? because I started this worship service this morning by talking about Jesus being our rest, right? Jesus calls to us to lay, you know, who, who are heavy laden, right? And to come to him and find rest for our souls and take up our, take up his yoke, right? God is our comfort and he calls us friend and, and, and we find peace in him, right? And, and, and we can call him Abba, Father. And he certainly is love, but let's not make any mistake, There's a reason why Paul says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You see, God is altogether holy and other. He is completely glorious. And he's the most dangerous being that exists. Yes, you heard me right. He's the most dangerous being that exists. Because remember what Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. The power and the glory of God are, are awesome and terrifying at the same time. Jesus' disciples catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ, the Son, and they're right to be in awe and fear of him. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. By his will, all things exist. And he's completely holy and righteous and just. Sinful man is right to tremble in fear in his presence. Now, if that were not enough, right, to bring them to awe and stir their hearts to great fear, we see that God the Father then, right after that shows up, as Mark writes, 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice overcame, and a, vo- and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Matthew in his gospel adds that when the disciples had heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You see, being Jewish, these men would have known exactly what this was. This cloud that overshadowed them, this this was God's Shekinah glory. This was the same cloud that led the Israelites out of the Exodus by day. This was the cloud that overshadowed the the tabernacle in the wilderness. This was the cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai that was visible for miles around. And this is the same cloud that filled the most holy place of Solomon's temple. They knew that they were now in the very presence of God the Father. And they were absolutely terrified. What an, what an awesome and terrifying experience. No one had ever seen or experienced the Shekinah glory of God for over 600 years. Right? And now these men are not just seeing it from a distance. They are in the midst of this cloud with Jesus. And just days before, they were hoping that Jesus would be this military leader and they would be his companions. And Jesus then crushes their vision and tells them the way forward is suffering and death and that they were probably, they were probably a bit dejected But now, (laughs) high up on this mountain, in the middle of the night, and Christ is glowing, and this dazzling cloud is around them with Moses and Elijah there bearing witness to all this. Suddenly, perspectives must have changed. And in that moment, God says two important things. He said, this is my beloved son, which is an echo of the statement of of Jesus' baptism. And this audible confirmation for these three men confirmed for him the identity of of Jesus' divinity. And he's not just the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And then secondly, he says, listen to what he says. God says, listen to what he says. And this is confirmation of the, the message that Jesus had just given them six days before. This is confirmation of who he is, confirmation of why he came, which is to die and to be resurrected. And it's confirmation of what it means to follow him, which is to deny it theirself and take up their cross and go where Jesus leads. God the Father himself confirms the earth-shattering message about what they'd heard six days before. And so understand, these three saw God's kingdom come with great power, Jesus promised. And then it says, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As quickly as it began, it ended. Like when Jesus calmed the storm, everything was instantly changed. The end of the supernatural experience was immediate. One moment, it's, you know, Jesus is glowing And Moses and Elijah are there and the cloud of God's glory envelops them. And then it's over just like that. Can you imagine what that must have been like? These men had watched Jesus feed 9,000 men and their families with, with scraps of food, with an abundance left over. They saw him cast out all manner of demons. They saw him heal the sick and even people with limbs that were distorted and, and, and mangled. He saw, they saw him restore the sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf. They saw him raise a little girl from the dead. And they saw him calm two different storms as big as a hurricane. And they watched him walk on water in the middle of one of those storms. But this... Right here is even more. They caught a glimpse of the glory of the one true God. And Jesus did this not simply to show them his power. He did this to strengthen these men. Make no mistake about that. He led these men up on the mountain to show them something that they could never have guessed. He did to encourage them and strengthen them and to confirm Peter's confession, reveal who Jesus really is, fortify and strengthen their resolve to follow him, demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Right? And that he's really the one that they're waiting on and that they can absolutely trust in him. Jesus did that for all those reasons, but also one more reason. Jesus did this to strengthen his disciples and to strengthen us. You see, the transfiguration also calls us to trust and follow Christ, the image of the invisible God and the radiance of the glory of God. 
As we talked about last week, the message to the disciples to deny self and bear their cross and follow Jesus was not just for them. It was for us. We are called to do the same thing. We're called to make Christ the center of our lives and willingly go where he leads, even if it is into the darkest places of the world and into the darkest seasons of our lives, even to our death. That message was for us too. And so is this revelation here. The same Jesus that bids us to follow him is the same Jesus who revealed his true nature on that mountaintop, who spoke with Moses and Elijah and of whom God the Father confirms, this is my son, listen to him. This story should help us to see the one who calls us to suffer alongside of him is the one who holds the world in the palm of his hands. The one who says, deny yourself and take up your cross is the creator himself and he is sovereign. And he is the one who has the power to keep us and bring us safely home to his side. And as Paul says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Church, this Jesus who says to deny ourselves and willingly embrace our cross and go where he leads is God. And he is with us. And he is for us. And his word says that nothing can take us out of the palm of his hand. And so our true joy and our great hope rest firmly, ultimately, in him. Let us, again, deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow him. Let us pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.